I'd like to have the passage open in front of you from Isaiah, Isaiah 9. And uh, we're looking at this whole matter of the light dawning. And uh, our street and the housing state on which we live takes Christmas lights very seriously. And already there are many houses, if you were to come up our way, which are covered in lights. The season is well underway. And really the brightness of the lights is in great contrast to the darkness that arrives so much quicker in this winter season. And uh, although decorative, these lights remind me of the, the greater theme that we find in the, the Word of God. Light, heavenly glory breaking in to the darkness of this world. And we began to consider that last time, and that is the focus of our text here in Isaiah this morning. And actually it's quoted by Matthew a little later in his gospel to where we read, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This light will come into the darkness. The answer would be from outside of this world. And so over and over in the, the narrative of the Scriptures, all the way through, we are reminded that God is not afraid or or defeated by darkness. The light will overcome. John draws out the same thing in his opening chapter in John 1. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And there are a number of things that we need to see from this premise. And the first thing is this, that this broken world in which we live is in darkness. You know, one of the realities that we have to face is that this world is a very dark place. You know, it is broken, it is ruined by sin. You know, we can never find our way or see reality unless the light of Christ, the truth of the gospel, takes hold of us and directs us. And the Word of God uses darkness to describe a number of different things, but most commonly to speak of evil and ignorance and sin. And friends, you know, surely even as we glimpse at life in this world, even if we look around us, it is evident that this is true. This world is broken. It is, it is full of evil and suffering. You know, if you think back to the time when the Lord Jesus came, the first Christmas, if you will, it was a time of turmoil, of war, of violence, of injustice, of abuse of power, displacement, oppression, division. Let me ask you, doesn't that sound familiar? Is that not what we see all around us? It's exactly like the world that we live in today. The fundamental problem remains. And the Bible never disguises just how dark life can get. The world is in darkness, and actually so are we. The Scriptures are clear that when sins multiply, when evil is celebrated, when God is set aside, as it were, darkness ensues. And we see that time and time and time again. It's certainly true in this passage we're looking at. By the time Isaiah began his ministry, there was an established history of people forgetting God and ignoring his prophets. And the context of the passage explains why this true light from God was needed and is so desperately needed. Isaiah 8, if you were to look back just at those verses, verses 19 to 20, 
the people in darkness. And what was happening was they were looking to mediums and dark forces and magicians. They were looking anywhere but to the Lord. And Israel had fallen into great sin under King Ahaz. He had introduced idolatry. He had placed a, a huge idol of the false god Molech on the Mount of Olives. And at the foot of this statue was a fire for child sacrifices. It was a, a tragic, wicked time. And wicked things had taken a foothold in the nation. And so Isaiah is sent by the Lord to declare a message of judgment and also the need for repentance. And so in the first part of this book of Isaiah, that is the, the clear message that we see. But as one explains, as his prophecies unfolded, it became clearer that his vision of the people's geographical exile and bondage in Babylon was only the outer shell of a deeper exile and bondage in sin. And so if you look at verses 21 to 22 of Isaiah 8, it says, They will pass through it, the land, hard-pressed and hungry. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So those would be the consequences of their rebellion against the Lord. And by the way, it would have been totally reasonable for the Lord to have done away with his people at this point. You know, they didn't want him. They were looking to the earth. They were looking to human resources to fix the problems they faced. You know, they were looking to mystics and depound scholars of the day. They were, they were desperate for answers. They, they knew all was not well. They knew that there was darkness in some measure, but here it is, they thought they could overcome it themselves. And there's no difference today. People are still doing the same, whether it be, you know, looking to leaders or to money or to technology or to relationships, to self, whatever. The same assumption runs throughout. Things may be difficult, but in the end, we can sort ourselves out. Now, that's the, the human mindset in their rebellion against God. And, you know, this message really comes into focus this time of year. You know, you see those, those messages, may this Christmas see love triumph and peace break out across the world. You know, you think of, of John Lennon's Christmas, say, happy Christmas, war is over. You know, John and Yoko put up the message on all the, the big billboards in the cities, and what was the message? War is over if you want it. You see, the assumption, the assumption is that it is within our power to right the wrongs that is within our power to dispel the darkness and overcome the troubles, to, to make things better and to face down darkness, that deep down we have the ability to make things better ourselves. But as one explains, war without cannot cease as long as there is war within. Recently read a quote from the, the first president of the country now called Czechia or the Czech Republic. Uh, from the late 20th century, Vaclav Havel. And he'd experienced socialism, capitalism, and he concluded neither could by itself solve the problems we face. And this is what he said, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeking of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. And that's it. You know, the Bible tells us repeatedly that man is in darkness, is held in darkness, cannot see the light. 
Proverbs 2.13 says that man is bound to walk in the ways of darkness. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. And that's why the message that we must proclaim at, at this time of year and, and at all times is not find the good within yourself. It's not try harder and make yourself better. It's not make the world better. No, the truth of the gospel and why Christ came is the total opposite of that. The Bible says we can't save ourselves. In fact, as Isaiah 8 makes clear, if we only look to the earth and human resources, the darkness gets worse. The world is broken. We are sinners. Darkness is all around us. There are forces of darkness to try and hold us in that state, and we are without strength to address any of that. But there is hope, and hope for sinners in darkness, for those who know they can't save themselves. And the good news of, of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, is that the God of the Bible is the God of grace. And he comes into the darkness to bring his light. And Isaiah's message of salvation and new life finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And that's why at the beginning of Isaiah 9, you have this glorious reversal. The Lord wouldn't leave his people. He wouldn't allow them to remain in misery. The light of grace was breaking into the self-inflicted gloom of sin. And so at the beginning of Isaiah 9, you have the reference there to Naphtali and Zebulun, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, just prior to this prophecy, the area had been laid to waste. And uh, the inhabitants had been taken into captivity by the king of Assyria. You can read about that in 2 Kings 15. And Isaiah speaks of how appalling it had been for, for Naphtali and Zebulun, but it won't always be like this. The light was going to dawn, and it was going to do so in the land most brutalized. And such was the Lord's mercy and grace that the nation that had known the greatest judgment would be the place where the greatest salvation would dawn. The light was going to dawn in Galilee of the Gentiles. They would see the dawn of Messiah's ministry. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And the emphasis is, is so striking. You know, here are these people sat in darkness. The light doesn't come from within them. This light comes upon them. It doesn't come from the world, but upon the world this light has dawned. This beautiful, pure, stunning light has come from outside the world. It is God himself breaking in. Jesus is that light. He has come, come to dispel that darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And as you look at this passage, you'll see that Isaiah uses the picture of the sun rising to help us understand. You know, this dawning, he speaks of, of God's light dawning on a dark world. You know, one commentator identifies three things that sunlight brings, which is helpful. It brings life. You know, if for some reason the sun ceased to shine, if the light was removed, at the very least we would freeze. The sun is crucial for life to exist. The Bible makes it clear that God, the true light, is the source of all life. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Friends, you need to think, even just at this very moment, 
we exist, we breathe, because the sovereign God is upholding us, keeping us together, giving us breath, sustaining every part. We have no control over that. And every moment we are indebted to his keeping us alive. It's true physically, as true spiritually concerning your soul. Now, according to the word of God, the original uh, full, full and broken right relationship with God that man had has been lost, Genesis 3. And that's the reason why now there is death physically, but also why in our natural state we are spiritually dead. And that means that without God outside of Christ, we know no meaning, we've lost hope, we are, we are prone to addiction and base desires, we know turmoil and dis, deep discontent in our lives, which we can never satisfy. We know shame, we struggle to know where we fit, we're, we're trapped with the inability to truly change. We are sinners under wrath and facing condemnation. And you know, in our natural state, we don't want God. We don't want him. We have no thought of him. We live with no reference to him. We are arrogant to think that life is ours for the taking, but every breath is borrowed and from the hand of a gracious God. Life. Truth is another thing. The Bible often uses light as a picture of truth. The Bible says that God is the source of all truth. Think of 1 John 1, verses 5 to 6. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know, at the very basic level, the only reason we can know anything is because of God. He has given us our minds, our ability to think, our cognitive faculties to whatever level. And yet for all of that, we cannot know God, we cannot know his character, we cannot know who he is unless he reveals it to us, which he does through his word, the Bible, by spirit. And it's only through him that your reasoning works and it's only through his word that you can understand who he is. And not only that, but it's only as you come to understand who he is that the Bible also reveals to you who you are and who you are before him, the truth. And then there's beauty. You know, light is dazzling. And there is something spectacular when we see the sun rise in its majesty. You know, light also brings relief. It brings joy. You know, it's true that there are places around the world where at certain times of the year, there are only a few hours of daylight. It can have a major impact upon the people. Some suffering with severe low mood and difficulty. Light impacts us. And the Bible tells us that God is the source of all beauty and joy. And you know, if you were to look through the Psalms, David uses the imagery of the sun rising, a, a great dawn, to declare something of the glory of God. In Psalm 19, he says, In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, maybe you've had the privilege of seeing a, a beautiful sunrise. You know, there are certainly many here in Penzance over the bay, and the beautiful colors and the, the stillness of the water and how it sparkles under the, the brightness of the morning sun rising to its height. It is awe-inducing. 
And the only right response is to look up in wonder and adoration of the one who made it all. And in Psalm 19, as David looks out on a, a beautiful morning and hears speech, as it were, pouring forth about the glory of God, he fixes his heart on one theme in that symphony of glory, and he watches the sun rise over the Jordan Valley. And on the inspiration of the Spirit, he pens those words that, that help him communicate something of what the glory of God is like, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And David wants you to, to see and to feel that when the Son pours forth speech about the glory of God, the message is that the glory of God is an overwhelmingly awesome and joyful thing. As one commentator explains, when the sun rises in lavish red and gold and lavender in the eastern sky, God's glory evokes praise and worship and joy like the joy of a bridegroom on his wedding day. And that joy reaches its full realization in this life, the Lord Jesus. And the Son of God is the light that we need. God alone has the life, the truth, the joy that we lack, and we cannot give ourselves. But how does this light come upon us? Verse 6 of Isaiah 9, unto us. A child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the answer. The light that they needed, the light that we need, is bound up in this child and what he will accomplish. And this child will bring these things because look at who he is. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know, they show that he is, you know, this child, these, these titles given this child, they belong to God alone. You know, the mighty God, everlasting Father, ascribing to him the very fullness of deity. Incredibly, he is the creator, and yet he condescends to be born. God becoming man, and yet remaining fully God. God taking to himself human nature. You know, let's just think for a moment. We haven't got time to go into all the, the great depths of these titles. They're so wonderful. But just think, Jesus is wonderful counselor. You know, as that is the case, we should listen to him. You know, what we need most of all is a counselor who will give us light on the ultimate causes of our condition and point us to the remedy. Only this enables us to see who we are and where we are and the nature of our situation and the way out. And we need counsel that points us to eternal life. And his word shows us the truth about our condition and brings us into its light. In his light, we see light. And he promises that those who follow him will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. And you would think, wouldn't you? You know, you would think that people would run to such a wonderful counselor. But they won't. They don't want to listen to him. You know, they, they don't want to trust him. They love their darkness. You know, you can read about it in Romans. They exchange the, the truth of God for a lie. They reject the creator to be taken up with the creature. So in the darkness, people pretend that all is well, and it's not. But they're lost. Now, that's the problem. We are spiritually blind. We need light. We are spiritually deaf. We need to hear the voice of Christ. We are spiritually dead. We need new life. We need help from outside. And who can help? The wonderful counselor the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only shines into my darkness, but is himself the light 
the life that we need. You know, um, he understands, and we could, we could look at the way in which the Lord Jesus, you know, is such a, a wonderful counselor because he stooped down and he understands. He, you know, here's the Son of God who had the infinite majesty and highness of, of being the mighty God, and yet he became one of us. You know, he, he came in order to know our darkness. And the Lord Jesus knows what we face. And so when we go to him and, and cry to him and talk to him, he understands. And he saves his people by going to the cross and taking that darkness, sin and death and hell, and taking it upon himself. And he did it willingly, freely, because of infinite love. You know, he is the beauty that should captivate our hearts and expose the fact that this world's pleasures are fading and cannot last. And as wonderful counselor, he walks with us even into and through the shadow of death where no one else can go with us. Matthew 4, 16, upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. He remains the light even when all others end. You know, and if the Lord Jesus is mighty God, then we should submit to him. You know, let me challenge you with this. When you come to the Bible and you read of Christ, you see that those who actually saw and heard him never reacted indifferently or in an apathetic way. You know, when they realized what he was claiming for himself and about himself, some feared him, others were furious with him, others wanted to kill him, others knelt before him and worshipped him, but nobody simply liked him. You know, not one person in the Gospels you know, says anything like what we hear today from various ones. Oh, you know, Jesus is just so inspiring. You know, and he, he really makes me want to live a better life. You know, that's never the reaction. If the baby born at Christmas is the mighty God, he deserves our total worship and devotion. You know, and, and more than that, Jesus Christ is the light. And again, in myself, I lack the will to trust him. I lack the power to love him but he is mighty God, and as such, he has all the power to give me light and life and to set me free. You know, if you look at verse 4, Isaiah uses a vivid illustration of this. And really, he looks back to the days described in the book of Judges when Israel's persistent sin led to their defeat and oppression by the pagan states around them. And really, it serves as a dramatic parable for spiritual oppression and deliverance. Sin brings bondage. We are beaten by the demands of the law, but the Lord Jesus overcomes and sets us free. And the nature of the, the victory that Isaiah describes is that it is a, a heroic deliverance. It is a heroic deliverance from sin and death and hell by the one who came down and humbled himself to death on the cross and triumphed. And so if the Lord Jesus is mighty God, we should submit to him. And if the Lord Jesus is everlasting Father, we should run to him. You know, we're not only in darkness and bondage, my friends. We are homeless. We are spiritual orphans. And we need a Father to know that we are loved. And the Lord Jesus Christ is such an everlasting Father. Now, just a very quick side point. Some people get very confused here and say, well, how can Isaiah call the Son Father? Well, there's no contradiction because Isaiah is not thinking about relationships within the Trinity. 
His focus is on, is on what happens when, when God is with us, in, with us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as a king was father to his nation, so the one on whose shoulders the government rests becomes our father, and through him we are adopted into the family of God. You know, the previous pastor here was Welsh. Some of you will know that. And he spoke often of something called hirith, and that is a longing for, for home in that sense, a longing for, for Wales. But friends, there is a spiritual hirith in all of us. There is a longing for communion with God, a sense of, of being far from the Father's house. We are, we are restless. It's a burden that we can't throw off. We, we can try and silence it and run from it and repress it, but it won't go away. And actually on the cross, the Lord Jesus experienced the ultimate isolation and abandonment and alienation from God so that we would not have to. And so in Christ, we are brought near. We are brought home. We are adopted into the family forever. And then lastly, as we draw these things together, if the Lord Jesus is Prince of Peace, we should trust him. You know, the gospel offers us peace in Christ, an assurance that God's judgment against our sin has been dealt with in Christ through his saving work on the cross. And so when you look at all these titles, you know, you see the Lord Jesus is the complete Savior. He is the light we need. Everything we lack, everything I lack is found in his fullness and given to sinners like me by grace. And as we finish, you know, the question is, how do I come to know this light? How, you know, how can I know it for myself this morning? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You know, he's the greatest gift ever given. The salvation he brings is a gift. And you can know this salvation, you can know Christ only if you receive him as a gift of grace. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And you say, well, what is that about? The imagery used in the text is showing that this great victory over evil won't require our strength. Warrior's boots will be no good to you here, nor will man-made armor or sword. You may as well melt them down and burn them up. Why? Because someone else is going to fight for us. And you say, well, who? This son who is given. And Isaiah develops that. You know, you think of the servant songs, Isaiah 42 to 55. You know, Isaiah points this great deliverer who will come and do something incredible. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for the sin of those who believe in him. And when we trust in Christ's work on our behalf, instead of our own futile efforts, God forgives us, gives us new life, and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And this glorious salvation dawns on us by grace with all of its new life and truth and beauty. And the only way to receive it is to admit that all of it is undeserved grace. You know, the Christmas 
Time is coming. Maybe you are looking forward to presents given and received. Some gifts are hard to receive. You know, some gifts are hard to receive, as one explains, because to do so is to admit that you've got flaws and weaknesses and you need help. There's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do so. You see, the message is that we are so lost that we are so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. And so you can't sort yourself out. You can't turn yourself around. You can't live a good and moral life and meet God's standard of perfection. And so to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to admit that you are a sinner, that you need to be saved by grace, that you need to give up control of your life and submit to him. You know, Jesus, when he went to that cross, darkness fell over the land. And the light of the world descended into darkness to bring sinners like us into that beautiful light. And so it is today that he comes to the neediest heart, the heart that has been awakened to the great need and the reality of sin, of lostness and darkness, that awakening work of the Spirit of God who prepares and enables sinners to respond to the call of the gospel. And you know, it is our prayer that many would come in repentance and faith, that many will come out of that darkness and see Jesus as the light. And we pray that the light that dawned in the galley of the Gentiles all those years ago would shine with penetrating power into the darkness of Penzance, that there would be a great turning to the Lord Jesus. The light has come. The one Isaiah spoke of all those years ago has come but you know there's a warning if you stay blinded to it then you'll stay in the dark forever and you'll fulfill the warning of the prophet Amos when he said is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light is it not very dark with no brightness in it you know there is no worse end than to be consigned to utter darkness for all eternity the darkness of hell and how tragic it is, how tragic it will be for you when the light has come, when, you know, he is here and commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. And here you are this morning with the opportunity to turn to this Savior. Why would you continue in your darkness? He has come. He has done all that was said of him that he would do. And in him, we have a complete Savior. There is none like him. He is the light. And may it be that we are those who have been called out of darkness into his light that we might forever proclaim his praises. Amen. Amen.